Welcome to Seizure Salad, Fuster Cluck Epilepticus. A salty, slightly cynical conversation about epilepsy, neurological disorders, and occasional random tangents. Together, we explore the synaptic jolts that short-circuit one's world and the mental and emotional fallout that comes from them. And if that sounds heavy, don't worry. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And now, Seizure Salad with your host and electrostatic meat sack, Micah B-Side. Hello, Andrew. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, man. Thank you. Great to uh, great to officially meet you via Zoom. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah. How's your How's your weekend? Uh, it was good. I'm I'm back in school, so all my classes are on the weekends now. So it's a little strange. But, uh... <laughs> so so uh, I guess this would be a question to ask if back in school. So you're teaching then, or are you a student? No, I'm a student. I'm a student. Yeah, no, I, um, I had thought about going back as a teacher, um, but, uh, it had stopped being as motivating as it had been. Okay. And I realized that moving forward, I would need something else. So I'm going back for, uh, a counseling degree. Ooh. So I, so I figure I could help people, uh, going through traumatic brain injury with counseling them through it. Oh, that is cool. That is really cool. I like that. Take what you went through and, and kind of pay it forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way, that's that's been, that was the biggest sort of, uh, within the last few years, um, I was actually going to start tutoring again. I had just gotten a job at a tutoring center near where I lived when the pandemic hit. So the job got canceled. And rather than just jump right back into it, I thought, you know what, let me really reconsider how I'd like to spend my time. Okay. So this was, this was something where I realized if I can help other people through what I've been through, that is sort of the ultimate uh, motivating thing. Right. Right. That's awesome. I really like that. I uh, it's, it's very similar to the why of, why I started seizure salad is kind of the same thing kind of started as a little bit of a, a way to vent, um, my own personal therapy, so to speak. And, um, after that, I realized that it actually helps a few people and that it was reaching people. And it was at that point that I realized that I, I needed to keep going with it, but also that I needed to bring other people on and share their stories so that it might be able to provide some kind of support and commonality for people so that they know they're not alone so that these feelings and 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 the weird shit that we go through when we're going through these kind of things isn't unique and doesn't make you a freak you know you're, you're part of a tribe so yeah well that i mean that was always if I was having a difficult time adjusting, uh, a lot of it was just the uncertainty. Is this supposed to be how I'm feeling, you know, during this experience? Because there's so, there was so few, uh, there's really not a lot of research that's been done uh, for how to adjust emotionally. Um, you know, for, for physically, there are always exercises you can do and there are indicators to track your progress. You know, one, one week you need a cane to walk the next month you don't. Um, but there's really nothing for how to adjust emotionally. So that, that was, if I, I feel I've, 
the days where I was struggling and felt better uh-huh. were usually just like on a message board, someone writing, oh yeah, I had a, a brain injury and that's how I felt too. And just hearing that uh, was enough to usually comfort me on a difficult day. I remember um, when I was in graduate school for writing, uh, one of the authors I really liked was this guy named David Foster Wallace. And one of his quotes was, good writing allows people to feel less alone. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to take that, but I'm obviously going to switch it to not incorporate writing all the time. But just if I can provide some sort of support uh, or or communication with someone so they don't feel alone, um, because it's difficult to go through whatever most people go through anyway. Uh, and then it's all magnified when you sort of feel like it's unique to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I could have put it better right there. Um, it's It does. It gets so magnified. And you just, how do you put it? It, it just, it hits you like a brick, like a ton of bricks. And isolation is one of the biggest problems you have with this. Um, for me, that's that's kind of how it hit. It was, it was that sense of isolation, and it hits different people different ways. And you get you know different intensities. Some people have, some people have a really extensive um, support network. You know, um, they're they're in a very stable environment. They have a partner, a life partner, or family surrounding them, um, or, or you know, fina- whether it be financially, emotionally. Um, the physical networks. And then those are, there are others who don't have that. And when it hits them, it hits them hard. And if you're not prepared for it, and if you don't know those kind of outlets and those kind of resources that are out there, you can find yourself in a really, really dangerous position. And I'm talking dangerous in, in the mental and emotional side of things. And I think you are absolutely correct in that there are so many resources to help us physically. Um, and financially there's, you know, there's outlets everywhere, but the, the, the mental side of it is, is under-resourced and, and even those resources that are available are underutilized. We're not told about it. We're not given that. And I think a lot of that stems from that societal neglect, I think over the years, it's only been in recent years that we've actually started to take these mental uh, issues and conditions seriously now um, and actually acknowledge them as part of the overall health and maintenance of the overall individual as a whole. So I commend you, man. I commend you greatly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. This was a, this will be i I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, man. I am too. I am too. And I, I think what you have gone through and your story um, strikes a common chord with a lot of people out there with epilepsy and other neurological conditions. Um, you know, well, let's do this. I, I don't know if you've heard, listened to a couple of my podcasts before or not, but we have a we have a glorious little habit here of of just jumping right into it before we even make the introductions. It's just a bad habit of mine. It's fun. <laughs> right on. Totally, totally good with it. 
Cool, cool. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome once again to Seizure Salad, Fuster Cluck Epilepticus. I'm your host, Electrostatic Meat Sack and Lab Rat, Micah B-Side. And today I'm speaking with Andrew Davey. Andrew is an accomplished writer. He is, as you have heard, he is into teaching. Um, he's a teacher and a student, which is one of my favorite kinds of teachers. He's got a very interesting side project of a website. Hopefully I can get him to talk about that. And one of the main reasons um, he's agreed to join us today is to talk about um, his story with uh, his experience with a ruptured brain aneurysm and his recovery from that. That is, that's something I really want to talk about this afternoon. Back in 2018, he survived a ruptured brain aneurysm and let's see if I can say this right, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Yep. It almost sounds like, like it's spider involved and I'm going to ask, I'm going to have to look this word up. Very happy that you were able to take time from your busy schedule to be able to talk to us today. How you doing? And um, yeah, where did this all start? Where was your, where was your love of, of writing? Where did that begin? Because I think this is a crux to the whole thing. Looks like it's one of your main passions. I looked over your website and you have a tremendous amount of work out there and you're still you're still going. You have some forthcoming books and stories. Um, what What is your writing process? Where did Wait, this you, be? Uh, hold on. We dropped the sound. Okay. Okay. No, no. Now I can hear you. Okay. Um, there, there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, growing up, I was always a big fan of movies. Um, and I think the idea was, you know, when I got to high school and then to college that maybe I would try to my hand at writing screenplays. That was always the sort of the goal. Uh, so I was a theater major when I was an undergrad because there was no the nice. There was no uh, film major program. I went to Tulane in New Orleans. And uh, while I was there, uh, I got a chance to write a one act play that they performed at the school. And that wow. sort of that that hooked me. I was like, okay, this is something I would like to keep doing. Um, I think I was a little naive as to how uh, what that would look like. I think I I because originally I'm from New York City, so I think I moved back to New York City when I graduated, and I thought uh, all I have to do is just you know hang a shingle and I'll get a job writing for a TV show or or so, you know something. Uh, and then the next, over the next decade, I would say, I sort of learned, uh, you know, what, what the journey would really be like. Um, I ended up, I ended up finding a bunch of different career paths. I ended up working in theater for a couple of years. I worked in finance for a few years and it was always to sort of service the writing career. I, I always looked at those positions as jobs rather than a career path, um, and along the way, I kept writing. Uh, nothing really ever came from anything I produced at the time. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it's probably still collecting dust, uh, you know, in a hard drive or on a, in a, but uh, eventually uh, I went back to grad school uh, and got my MFA. Um, and that really helped. I sort of was able to take the determination and and whatever raw talent there was and kind of learn how the process works. Um, so that was really instrumental. And then while I was at school, I learned, I, I got a chance to teach. And then that's kind of how I fell into the teaching profession. 
Um, but really it was always to service, you know, writing, um, writing, writing fiction and prose just sort of became the path of least resistance. Um, okay. you know, with, uh, as you know, in theater or in, uh, in film or anything, it's much more of a collaborative experience. Uh, and, and you need to find a group of people who you can work with really well and sort of that are on the same page. Um, yeah. and that became more difficult for me to do. So I realized, you know what, if I write fiction, it's just me. And then the reader, there's really no other, uh, no, no other hoops I need to jump through. So I sort of shifted my focus. Um, and then while I was, I was teaching uh, high school English and my first book got accepted to a small press for crime fiction. And I sort of assumed, okay, this is, this is going to be it. This is going to be the big, the big break. Uh, and then, you know, I had the aneurysm soon after that. So which which changed things, but I don't I re, I remember listening to a great conversation once that um, the producer Rick Rubin had with a musician um, uh, from Outcast. I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Andre, ben Andre Andre yeah Andre Benjamin and yeah. and they they talked about how when you're an artist or you're creative, it feels like you have this hole in you, um, and you think to yourself when I produce this record, when I make this film, when I write this book, whatever it is, that's going to fill the hole. Uh, and then you sort of, Love as that. you go through it, you, you create whatever, whatever the work is and it doesn't fill the hole. And that's when you sort of realize, oh, there's much more to this experience than just sort of crossing the finish line. Um, and I was also, that was a big perspective shift for me uh, I know I'm jumping around with topics now, but with with the aneurysm recovery, a lot of it was being able to sort of shift the perspective. Um, but but going back to to writing, um, it had always been something I was really passionate about. It was a way to express myself and sort of uh, fill that hole, so to speak. Um, huh. I think I have changed my perspective on it over the years. Now I enjoy it more as just something that I do. Um, I think 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I probably would have needed for something to come from it. You know, like I, I need for there to be X amount of people who've read it, or I need to know what, you know, that it resonates with people. And now it's more just something that I can do to express myself. Um, okay. I'm still, I'm still fortunate that I can do it. That would, that was a concern, you know, after, after the aneurysm during recovery, you know, some of it, my, my abstract thinking disappeared for a while. So that was something where I thought, okay, if this doesn't come back, what is this going to look like? Um, eventually it came back. Um, and, you know, going to enough support groups these days, I, I know how fortunate I am to be able to still do many of the things that I used to be able to do. My, um, my limitations now are uh, are more of like a nuisance than a problem. I, I like to say it's sort of like a fly to picnic. It's not really going to ruin your day. You'll notice it, but it won't. So that's um. So yeah. So to go to answer your initial question, writing was always something I was passionate about, um, and it's really been a sort of long journey to kind of 
capitalize on the drive. Um, I'm still very much driven. I try to write as often as possible. And I, 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 again, I've been fortunate enough to find people who are willing to, to put the work out there. Um, but it's also been nice just to have it as an outlet now. I think that was, um, that was something I sort of fell into now, uh, you know, post aneurysm and realizing that publishing a book is not going to change your life, uh, the way that you would expect. Um, so now it's just something that I kind of can look forward to as a way to stay engaged and enjoy my time and do all of these other things. Okay. So, so, and this kind of answers a question, a question I was, I was going to ask instead of using the writing as a tool to get to a goal, it is, it is a almost like a goal in and of itself in that it's, it's just expressing that part of you. And it, it is, it is an activity that exists in and of itself outside of any kind of intention or, or end goal or sub subliminal like motivation, underlying motivation. Is that, am I hearing that right? Ab yeah, absolutely. I think um, when I would teach creative writing uh, recently, I had the chance to, to offer a part-time online class and I said to the students, if you can find joy in the process or fulfillment in just the process of it, you're always going to find something to enjoy. Uh, once you start looking at the end point, you know, I need to finish this to get it out there for people to read. You're sort of chasing the dragon. Um, and if you, you may get a great feeling from somebody reading your work, but then you spend all the focus trying to recapture that moment rather than just finding something that you can enjoy a hundred percent of the time. Okay. So a, a lot of it is being able to kind of have the right perspective. Uh, but that takes, it takes a lot of time and, uh, you know, discipline to kind of realize like, Oh yeah, I need, I need to view this in a different way that I am. And I I'm certainly somebody who was very much looking at it. Like as soon as I publish a book, that's miraculously going to change my life some way. I don't know how, but I will, you know, I, I'll need to start, you know, getting more, more uh, space on my phone and on my computer for all the information that I'll need, you know, just things that, that I, I had assumed, but um, yeah, I love but that. Yeah, now it's, now it's, uh, I appreciate it for what it is. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say uh, that I, continue to say to everyone, I mean, if they were my students or not, is um, uh, we, we tend to hold ourselves to such high standards. You know, if we begin to experience problems or difficulties, then it's sort of like we feel like we're failing. And all of this, in my experience, everything in life pretty much has moved in a spiral uh, rather than a straight line. So, um, you know, I, I still wrestle with things all the time uh, and then feel like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm moving backward. Uh, and I forget that in the, you know, if, you, if I pull back a little bit, I'll see that I've moved so much far forward uh, and only just a, a couple inches backward. And that that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, instead of being so caught up in, in where you are now, 
you got to pull back and, and look at the bigger picture as to instead of seeing where you were compared to like yesterday or last week, where are you now compared to last year or two years or five years ago? That's a great that's a great way to look at it. And that's a really good piece of advice. Um, speaking of speaking of teaching and, and your students, you had mentioned earlier that when you were starting out, the um, the side jobs you had, and this is very, it's like a parallel to to my work with my voiceover work and, and the radio stuff that I had done in the early days. Um, I, I too had tons of different side jobs off and on throughout my adult life in funding the pursuit of, you know, being the next big voice actor or something like that. Was teaching another one of those gigs or did you find yourself falling into a lot of what what people who teach go into is is no this is the calling this is what i'm going to do and this in and of itself is enough it, much more so than anything else had been um that was sort of the first time i felt like okay this could be a calling that i could keep doing and 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 Really, I thought that was going to be the balance that I would that I would write and that I would teach and that that would be the 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 way, you know, what I ended up doing for the rest of my life. Um, there were there were still definitely a lot of times where I felt, you know, I would off, I would often use the metaphor for war when it came to teaching. And I would always view my colleagues as, you know, soldiers who really believed in the cause um, whereas I was still more of a mercenary. Um, like I, I, I enjoyed aspects of teaching and certainly made a lot of great connections with students. Um, and it was enjoyable, but I also would put writing before that. Whereas most of my colleagues would put teaching their students as the number one priority. So there were always elements, but yes, that was the first time where I sort of felt like, okay, this is different. This isn't just a, a day job. This is something I, I feel like I'm much closer to, to hearing as a calling. Cool. I like that. So you always got to give yourself a little bit of flexibility and listen to that inner voice and that inner intuition. But sounds to me like, like you're really in tune and you didn't jump to anything and you didn't let fear guide you, which I respect. I respect that greatly. Yeah. What I mean, yes and no. I mean, it, the I frequently think back to one of the one of the um, one of the things that's been helpful over the last couple of years uh, because it's been a very strange time for all of us. Um, I I had just turned forty the week before my aneurysm, so uh, the you know the first year I was forty. Uh, was dealing with, you know, a life altering event that was very personal and difficult to articulate to people. And pretty much as soon as I had begun to get my life back on track, that's when the COVID pandemic hit. So it's been a completely different, uh, but, but much more universal experience where everyone is sort of going through it. So I, uh, what's been helpful is there's a, uh, a non-secular Buddhist podcast I listen to to sort of help meditate and calm down and, and things like that. And one of the uh, parables the guy talked about is a parable of this farmer who 
suggests that events in and of themselves aren't either good or bad. It's just our perception. So he talks about uh, finding a horse on the farm and the neighbor, his neighbor says, what a great stroke of luck. You've found a free horse. And the farmer says, well, we'll see. Uh, and then the son tries to saddle the horse and ends up breaking his leg. And the, farm, and the farmer's neighbor says, oh, this is so awful. And this farmer says, well, we'll see. And then the next day, the army comes to conscript all the young men in the town, and they can't take the son because he has a broken leg. So, so much of what's happened over the last couple of years, I always want to jump to make a decision about something, and then I'll wait, and it will end up playing out in my, you know, much more to my liking. Uh, you know, I was going to go back into teaching uh, at the, I was going to tutor at the, at the, uh, learn at the center. Um, and then when COVID hit and I didn't, then it was sort of, I looked at it like, okay, this is an opportunity to kind of reassess everything and see, do I really want to go back to teaching? Um, right. So, so yeah, I mean, I haven't, I, I, it's, it's taken a really long time to become comfortable with uncertainty. Um, and realize like, okay, you know what? It might be difficult. I don't have a background in counseling or psychology or anything like that, but I feel like that's where I should be. So I'll figure out how to make it work. Um, and it might be really overwhelming and I may, you know, have to start over from scratch, but I'm, you know, at this point I'm sort of willing to make that decision because I know what the potential is. Yes. And that, and that's what's going to keep me motivated each day. Nice. nice. So, so yeah, but it, it took, I mean, it took a really, and I, I was fortunate. I keep saying I was fortunate, but I was during COVID when my job was canceled, I wouldn't have anything to do. So my mother actually drove up to pick me up and brought me back to my folks place. So I lived with my folks for a little over a year. Um, which was really nice because I had human interaction every day. I could help out around the house. Um, and I didn't really have to think about a lot of the minor things that people have to think about every day. Um, I could just sort of focus on, you know, heal, continuing to heal from the aneurysm and reassessing sort of what I can do with the next yeah. 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. Again, another, another parallel um, in, in some ways to, to my story with, um, when I got hit, when my epilepsy finally broke through and in, into grandma's and tonoclonics, I lost everything. And I had to move out of the mountains and come down from Glenwood Springs into the front range of Denver. And I stayed the first year and a half or so with, with friends. And, um, then when the pandemic hit, I moved back up with my folks and, uh, you're right. It definitely helps to uh, alleviate a lot of the minor things that can be so overwhelming when you're recovering from neurological trauma and uh, allow you to focus on some of the bigger things like healing and preparing for life beyond. So that is that is really cool. Now let's put this into a real quick timeline here. Um, sure. You've been prolific in your writing and um, you'd been teaching and then 
these two things were going on simultaneously. Now, were you still teaching when the aneurysm hit? And can you kind of describe that day? Yeah. Um, no, the, again, it's, you know, it's, it's, I had just finished the school year. So it was, it was June, um, of 2018. I had just finished the school year. Uh, I actually had not renewed my contract because I thought I would try, uh, to get a PhD in creative writing. Um, so, so I had sort of, I was rolling the dice. I hadn't gotten into any programs. I had applied to a few of them. Uh, and then, the night before I'd gone out to a concert with a friend of mine in Washington, DC, I live in Alexandria, uh, which is only about a half an hour away. And I felt fine. Everything was great. We had a great time at the show. Um, and then the next morning I was going to fly to visit my parents. Um, and my brother and his family were already at my parents' house. So it was going to be like a family reunion. Um, and again, I got to the airport. I felt fine. Uh, it was an early flight, I think around 8.30 maybe. Uh, and then when I got to my gate, I started to sweat like I had just run a marathon. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, okay, this is strange, but maybe I'm just coming down with a flu or a cold or something. So I sort of disregarded it as a red flag. Um, and then they called my group uh, so they said, you know, group four, you can board. And I picked up my backpack and it felt like it had cinder blocks in there. And that's when I, again, I thought, okay, this is, this is wrong. But, you know, again, I was just sort of like, I, I maybe, I mean, I'll take a nap on the plane. That'll be, that'll be how I deal with this. Uh, and then I started to walk, uh, I scanned my ticket, started to walk down the jetway and the floor began to move like, uh, like in a fun house in an amusement park. Um, but again, I wasn't thinking clearly because I remember thinking, okay, I have to get enough momentum to get me onto the plane rather than floors shouldn't move like this. So I took a step, I fell down, uh, and I just, I remember hearing someone say, don't move. And I remember thinking, okay, I won't. So I didn't move. Uh, and at first responders immediately, you know, were able to immediately get there, put me, uh, in a neck brace. Uh, I, re- I do remember saying I can't miss my flight. And the person laughed and said, don't worry, you can always catch another flight. Um, I guess he sensed the severity of, of, of what was happening. Um, and then that's it. I, I don't have any more memory of it for the next three weeks. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was crazy. You know, I I actually, I wrote, uh, I've written a memoir that includes uh, a section on the aneurysm, but uh, I've written an addendum that I'm going to hopefully publish this summer that includes more of a philosophical insight into examining like, okay, this had to happen this way, which had to happen this way, which had, you know, down, you know, if, I could, you know, if I'd been in the bathroom 30 seconds earlier, uh, or anything like that. Um, so, uh, but I had filled out the emergency contact form on the website. So JetBlue, the airline called my mother 
and said that there had been an accident. I'd been unable to board the flight. Um, so they, my parents knew that something had happened. Uh, and then I found out later that right after my surgery, the uh, neurosurgeon's physician's assistant found my cell phone and saw a bunch of missed calls. So he ended up calling my brother from my phone to just say, look, you get, you all need to get up to DC. Um, and then thankfully they were able to, you know, that every, everybody was able to come up. Um, I've seen cell phone videos of me in intensive care, talking to people and doing things, but, uh, I have no memory of it. Um, wow. and then my memory came back when I was in, uh, inpatient rehab. That's, you know, when I, when I first, so those are the only, the, the detail, I have a couple of details from the day, um, uh-huh. mostly just impressions, uh, and then, you know, remembering falling down. Um, and then that's pretty much it. And then I, my, my mother was kind enough to share with me emails that she had written to everybody to, to sort of keep track of my progress. Um, and that's the only objective sort of view that I have of everything. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, but that was the, that was almost four years ago. Wow. Wow. And so there was that, th- there's that three week window between the fall and then getting into the inpatient care. Is that still a blank? Yeah. yeah. I, the only, <laughs> it's funny. Cause I do, I remember the phrase, let it fly. Uh, and, and that's it. And I, I don't, I didn't have any context for it. So I asked my, my family later, did you, did did you say let it, and they said that when I kept, I kept trying to get out of bed to use the bathroom. Um, so they were telling, they were telling me you have a catheter, you can just let it fly. And that's, uh, and so, so, but that's the only thing that I remember. And I don't remember any, it's just the audio of let it fly. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, those, and apparently, you know, there's some really funny, it's, it's always, you know, the, the, uh, the, one of the um, quotations I have in the memoir at the very beginning is comedy is just tragedy plus time. <laughs> oh, that is and, so brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I I think Steve Allen said it when he was on, but, um, you know, there are things at the time I remember I learned that my family needed my password, my computer password to access my laptop and they would ask me for it. And my father said I would come really close to telling them and then instead lecture them on how you're not supposed to give away that information. (laughs) And then they somehow found a back, a back door into the, but I think at one point I told everybody that, uh, I used to teach in Australia, uh, which is, I've never been to Australia. So that's, I don't know where that, um, (laughs) so yeah, there, there, uh, there are moments that are really, that I, that I find really funny that, um, that I sort of try to keep that tragedy plus time, you know, mantra in. Yeah. Yeah. So, humor, humor can make the darkest hours, um, less scary. 
I, yeah. 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 I no, think. it's, I, 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 even before the aneurysm, I remember my, my brother actually is a doctor and he said when he got to medical school, the, the gallows humor was something he had to get used to because, uh, you know, they, they, I guess they all are sort of like that. And I said, you know, it makes sense. You have to, you have to find the humor in anything. And sometimes it'll seem like you're crossing the line because all you're dealing with is suffering and death. And if you can't yeah. find a way to make that endurable, um, you know, and for all of us, we're all sort of navigating through our own difficulties. If you can't find ways to make it, uh, you know, less difficult on yourself. Exactly. I, I use, I've always used uh, cynicism and, and dark humor to get me through a lot of my trauma a good laugh at your your dire circumstances uh that's helped me take steps forward yeah i mean i i include you know the the my memoirs broken down into four sections there's uh a section on jobs and teaching there's a section on the aneurysm uh, there were a couple of years where I dealt with having obsessive compulsive disorder that had sort of gotten out of control. So I talk about that. Uh, and then I talk about my online dating experiences and let's just say that none of them worked out well. So <laughs> it, it was one of those things where I sort of figured, you know what, I will happily throw myself under the bus if it might make somebody else feel more comfortable with something that's that's bothering them uh so i would i would never embarrass anyone else in a story like i would always use a pseudonym for somebody or if there was something that i felt cast uh, someone in a bad light i wouldn't mention it but uh but if i looked like an idiot or if i said something that made me look foolish that was fine um provide you know provided that somewhere and you know that's really when I was teaching, uh, I always felt like I was never really good at uh, disseminating information to students, like, um, you know, coming up with uh, with problems for them to do. That would be the best way for them to learn, whereas a lot of my colleagues were very gifted that way. Um, but what I could do is I remembered what it was like to be a 15 year old kid in high school and feel confused and need support. So I was always somebody who was really good at being there for the kids and yeah. could sort of be a role model that they could talk to. Um, and I feel like that's sort of a lot of uh, writing nonfiction, at least, um, or getting into counseling or doing any of that stuff. That's sort of a way where I feel like I can bring some experience to the table to just help people as they're trying to, to navigate through their own difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists are people who have gone through their own trauma and their own rough journeys, you know, and personally speaking, I, I trust somebody like that much more than I trust someone who's just got a piece of paper because you know that they have at least an understanding of what you're going through. And if they can sit there and they can give those kind of examples, then it gives me a trust factor and and an ability to open up to somebody because you know they're going to get it so yeah i know where you're coming from there i know where you're coming from you ocd 
Do you think that developed from the brain aneurysm or do you think that's something that came from an aside? I, oh, I, have... I know I, I had that before the okay. aneurysm. Yeah, yeah that was, a, too. That, that was a separate, uh, I mean, I, I have my theories of how it started to sort of, you know, become more focused. Um, but yeah, no, that was about 2008. So that was about a decade before the. Okay. Was yours, was yours like, I had the, I've always had this thing of, of symmetry. Everything has to be symmetrical. I've forced myself to get better over the years, but it's, I've, I've found that after the grandma's, um, and the big breakthrough seizures, I'm falling back into it. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm going to address with my therapists and counselors is, is tools to break away from that. But, you know, I had to have that middle thing and everything on the left and right side of my field had to be symmetrical. Did you find that's somewhat similar or did you have different habits? I had to, so mine was more of an anxiety based thing where I was, uh, I was concerned that I would, that I would catch HIV from, you know, like touching a doorknob or do it, you know, being in New York city that, and growing up in the, you know, the eighties and nineties, that was that, that, I don't know why that became the, the, the thing that, you know, that it did for me, but it did. Um, mm. so for me, it was a lot of hand washing um, reluctance to touch things, uh, you know, which, which sort of that, that, you know, you know, it's funny to think about now, um, because I started taking Prozac for it and it basically went away. That was like the, the godsend, wow. thankfully. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it, it, it was, there were a few years where I just sort of white knuckled through it. Um, and it wasn't so much needing things to be a certain way uh, or having symmetry or a certain, you know, certain numbers or count. It was more just, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I step on something, did I just step on a hypodermic needle and am I, am I now going to get HIV? Um, you know, really just crazy illogical leaps, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't, it, you know, I, I would try to explain to people, that uh, it's never it was never logic that was sort of guiding how i was reacting to things it was just it was very much like being in i'm going to use a funhouse metaphor again like being in a funhouse with distorted mirrors and you can't really trust what you're seeing so that's yeah. that's what it that's what it was very much similar but but again thankfully i i took prozac that helped uh and then after the aneurysm um, I discovered that that may have tempered things. Uh, there, I spoke to a neurologist who said that there have been studies where head injuries have sometimes, uh, you know, tempered. So I, I I'm thinking perhaps that could be a silver lining. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but wow. yeah, no, it, it was separated by about a decade. Okay. Okay. Wow. I'm starting to think that maybe my OCD came from my step-grandmother who was a little more on the high society type and, you know, taught us how to, you have to put your fork here and your spoon here and this is how you set a table and this is what you need to do and everything had to be so 
in line and perfect. So that's probably where mine came from was that that ha everything has to be prim and proper and and look just right. So I, I yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I, I, I see. I never really like coincidences. Mm -hmm. um, Neither do and I. Around the time that my OCD started to get bad, I began to work from home. So not going out as often and not coming into contact with a lot of people, I think probably changed how I processed information. Mm -hmm. So I look to that as being, uh, you know, probably a contributing factor, whether, you know, whether or not that's the sole reason, but uh, it just, it struck me that around the same time, you know, or within the first year that I was working from home, you know, and, and I guess essentially my, my, my patterns, my, my lifestyle changed. So I'm thinking that that probably contributed somehow. Yeah, I bet you're right. That sounds, that sounds like the best, most, most rational answer. Most definitely, most definitely. So we're going to fast forward just a little bit here. Sure. Um, we are, you're, you're writing, you're writing, you were teaching, then you stop teaching, you put in your, your uh, notice, and then the aneurysm happens. We've got this blank period, and then you're in inpatient. Um, and then from there, um, how long did the inpatient last? And then were you writing during this period, or was during the inpatient, did you get back into it, or did you get back into your writing after you got out of the inpatient? So the, I think I was in the hospital for the inpatient stuff for maybe 10 days, I think. And, and at the time I was mostly just operating on autopilot. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I was just kind of following instructions like, okay, at, at you're going to wake up at seven and eat breakfast and then you're going to have physical therapy and then you're going to come back for a break and then you'll have occupational therapy. And, and I was just sort of at the time, I think just saying, okay, this is what I'm doing. Um, I, di I didn't really have a chance to reflect on the depth of anything or what it all meant. Um, I didn't write anything new at the time, but I remember, uh, either submitting things that I had previously written or thinking about, you know, it was, it was strange. I kind of just picked back up, uh, as soon as I could like, Oh yeah, this is, this was due. I had wanted to send this. So I may as well do that. Um, and then I think I had had a book that I had written that I had wanted to edit. So I was going to send that to a copy. So sort of housekeeping things I kept doing. Um, okay. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really until, so 10 days and then afterwards I came back to my apartment and my mom stayed with me and we did about a week of outpatient sort of therapy. Um, and then that's kind of where I started getting back into like, let me see, do I have any new ideas I can capitalize on or anything? Um, and I, went back to my folks place cause it was just much easier to, uh, to, to go through every, you know, the outpatient stuff with them. Um, and that's where I, I wrote, uh, I, I, I will keep track of certain ideas 
here and there. Um, I remember uh, once my brother telling me when he was in med school, he, he became really fascinated with, um, with rabies for whatever reason. Um, and just sort of the mortality rates behind if you don't, if you don't get, uh, the, the vaccine or whatever for rabies almost immediately, there's like a 99% mortality. I mean, it's re it's, so I remember thinking, I don't know why I was thinking this, but I thought about, uh, a character that was a bootlegger and I thought he'll be a bootlegger, then he'll survive rabies and he'll become a man of God because he'll believe he, you know, he was cured through religious divine intervention. Um, and then I kept expanding on that story to ultimately write a, a crime book about a bunch of people who commit a gold heist during the great depression. So one of them is a bootlegger, one of them is a, a prohibition era boxer, one you know one of them uh, works as like a district attorney. Um, but it was all sort of, and that was the first thing that I wrote that was new, that was kind of like, let me see if I can just write this, and I can still do it. Um, yeah, I, I was. It was. I guess I was sort of wise enough not to put too much pressure on myself to see if anything will come from it. It's sort of like, let's just step up to the plate and take a few swings and see how it is. And, and fortunately I could still do it. It was still enjoyable. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so that was probably within the first month and a half after I think I had left the hospital, um, that I begin that I started to see if I could do it again. Um, yeah start a new project, not just, not just like you said, not, not just housekeeping, but actually start a new project. Was it scary or, or how did you feel picking up that pen? It, I mean, I think I, I knew how important it was to try and stay engaged or to have something to do. So I kept trying not to think about it outside of just a very small, like, let's just see if we can have fun writing this story about this character. Uh, yeah. you know, it was, it was more just like that. Um, the, the, I would say the first year afterward, uh, was mostly just let's take this bit by bit and step by step and see if something comes from it or not. Um, so writing was the case with that. It was like, let's just, you know, write a short story if you have an interesting idea. And then if, um, you know, if it resonates and it can work, then send it out. And so th again, fortunately, uh, people seem to still enjoy what I'm doing. So I will, I've been able to keep putting things out, but. Nice. How many stories do you um, have going on in your head and on paper at, at any given time? Because I'm looking, just looking at your um, your repertoire on, online, and you've got a massive amount of of work between the end of your aneurysm and today. I mean, it just I'm scrolling down, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, and I keep scrolling. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for taking the time to look through it. Uh, second of all. Some of those stories are only like 600 words and they're, they're uh, more like essays about 
you know, nonfiction things from my past. Uh, okay. There was a, there was a website that I found that I really liked, where the uh, person who ran it would accept something from me every week, pretty much for for like for like six months. So the bulk of those stories were not necessarily new ideas. It was just kind of like let me. Oh yeah, that was a funny memory I had from 30 years ago. Let me write about that. Um, so it, it it wasn't like I wasn't certainly wasn't Stephen King coming up with you know a ton of new content all the time. Uh, and again, it was more just like okay, well, over the next couple of days, while I'm continuing to heal, let me write about this funny event. Um, and these days, I probably have. I, I go back to old ideas that I have that I that either I wasn't able to capitalize on back then. So I have a couple of those that are sort of in the files that I will revisit. Um, one of the uh, I have a series of books about two unlicensed detectives that operate out of a diner. Yeah. Um, so that that formula will you know there's always there's always it's it's kind of like a tv show you know like there's always going to be uh cases that these two people will have um and i uh so i have I, ideas for that um and you know it's just it, i will often hear something that someone said or read about you know i i remember uh i taught in macau for a year um cool and I remember reading uh, a story about how uh, Japan had just had an earthquake a few years previously. So at one of the zoos, they had zookeepers dressed up in animal outfits and run around the zoo to, to uh, simulate like an animal escape to give the zookeepers practice on if another earthquake happens and animals get out of their pens, how are <laughs> So I thought, okay, that's a perfect scenario for a story. What must life be like for this person dressed up in a Tony the Tiger outfit, <laughs> pretending to escape from, so I, I had, you know, so I'll hear things like that uh, or read things or, or, and that'll just spark like a, I wonder what that would look like type thing. Yeah. Um, and these days it's strange enough that there's never a shortage of uh, interesting, interesting <laughs> scenarios. Oh, you said it. You nailed it right there, man. It's like the universe is just feeding it to you. And honestly speaking, um, I, I understand what you're talking about there, but you're not giving yourself enough credit because, because the fact that you are continually writing and the fact that whether or not it's a formula or whether or not it's an older idea, you're doing the one key thing that most writers uh, oftentimes fail to do and that's actually pick up the pen and it's actually to put that pen to paper um, on a regular basis and so kudos man kudos to you most definitely um, the uh, the times after the aneurysm and during the during the recovery process do you think and I mean it's kind of a stupid question um, I'm not even gonna ask if the aneurysm had any effect on your writing or makes its way into your writing but do how much how much did that 
make its way into your writing very little or or a lot uh, most I would say in fiction in really this is to my sick kids time to flip this shit Depakote Adderall Ritalin Pixie Sticks I don't give a fuck what you're writing to the setting son use it as a weapon when it's said and done it's all too much said it's all too much said it's all too much your legs, you go and beat it with your crutch. It's all too much. It's all too much. You said it's all too much.